It's a case that currency traders are watching to see how far they can push the envelope. After two weeks, prosecutors in Brooklyn have rested their case against the first person to go on trial following a global crackdown on currency market rigging. Prosecutors say former currency trader at HSBC Mark Johnson was assigned to conduct a $3.5 billion currency trade codenamed Project Shine, and that he used knowledge of the order to purchase sterling before the transaction, making $8 million in illicit profits for the bank. Joining me is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell University Law School. Bob, will you start with a description of the charges and front-running? Sure, uh, and thanks for having me on again, June. So the, the charge is, is, that, is that Mr. Johnson uh, had, of course, inside information about the pending uh, currency purchase because, of course, he received the order. And so the claim is that sort of in anticipation of that purchase is actual, actually happening, he bought a lot of pounds sterling, sort of on the cheap, uh, with a view, right, essentially to uh, capitalizing on the, the price rise that would occur if he structured the order itself what uh, sort of properly, right, in a manner that sort of drove up the price. So the claim is that this is essentially a fraudulent act because he essentially endeavored to manipulate the price of the currency in a way that rendered it more expensive for his client. Uh, and, uh, of course, at the same time, he paid very little for it or much less for it himself. And so he was essentially pocketing the spread between those two uh, those two prices. Also joining us is Lenan Nguyen. She's a Bloomberg FX reporter. <laughs> Lenan, the jury has heard tapes of a phone call prosecutors say is the real-time talk of the front-running scheme. It's hard to beat tapes as evidence. Tell us about the call. Well, what the there's a lot of trader jargon in the phone call, June, but what essentially is occurring is uh, the traders are talking about a process called ramping the price, which means, um, you know, artificially inflating the price by buying uh, a lot of pounds. So uh, the, the Prosecutors are alleging that they did this, um, you know, to disadvantage their client and to make the client end up paying um, an inflated price for the pounds. Bob, one of the prosecution's expert witnesses was asked by the defense about pre-hedging. Mm-hmm. What is that, and how does it complicate the prosecution's case? Yeah, so, so there's a lot of argument about this. But um, so the idea behind pre-hedging is that, well, if you're anticipating a large order being placed by a client uh, and you're going to, have to buy a lot of currency in the market in order to uh, make that sale to that client, uh, you might purchase some for your own account in advance just in case the price starts rising so quickly that you're ending up having to pay a lot more yourself. So the idea is you're sort of, in effect, stocking up your in- inventory uh, a bit in advance of the actual purchase and sale for your client. Um, and, and, and again, you can imagine a legitimate reason to do that. But of course, it's also there's a significant gray area between that legitimate form of hedging on the one hand and just out and out front running uh, on the other hand. Lennon, what has been the strongest part of the prosecution's case? I think the strongest part of the prosecution's case for now is the uh, the tapes that they have and the um, some of the quotations that they have from the traders talking about you know ramping the price until the client squeals um, you know at one point he exclaims um, you know effing Christmas uh, and so you know those those do not look good from an optics perspective. But as as your expert said, um, you know, there are very common practices in foreign exchange in terms of hedging very large orders. And so I think the battleground in this case is going to come down to those gray areas. At what point does hedging then become something else? At what point does, you know, um, HSBC uh, allege to mislead their client in order to sort of 
increase or boost that price to the client's disadvantage. So, Bob, how difficult is it for the prosecution to convince the jury that this was not hedging? Well, so, so, so the issue is actually remarkably similar to that that comes up in connection with the Volcker rule, right? Because in the, when it comes to the Volcker rule, you're trying to distinguish between legitimate hedging behavior on the one hand and proprietary trading on the other. Um, and it's, sometimes it's not that difficult to tell them apart. You can sometimes tell the intention of a transaction on the basis of sort of surrounding evidence. In this particular case, um, things are even easier for the prosecution, though. And that's precisely because of the language just mentioned, right? When they're saying, uh, you know, raise up the price or ramp up the price until the client squeals, when they say, oh, my my gosh, they're not squealing yet, effing Christmas, that's pretty good evidence of what the intention was. Uh, and oftentimes, the intention evidence is the most decisive when it comes to determining whether somebody's engaged in legitimate hedging on the one hand or something a bit more uh, fraudulent on the other. Lenan, the prosecution has not had great results, to say the least, with these currency cases. Tell us a little bit about that. Sure. The context is very important here. Um, in terms of individuals being prosecuted for crimes, uh, there haven't been any. So while global banks have been fined almost $10 billion for uh, manipulation of FX rates, um, there actually hasn't been a single person who's gone to jail. So the stakes, I think, are very high here. And uh, from my work uh, talking to people in the industry, everyone is watching this extremely closely to see if this is going to be a test case for um, future prosecutions. Bob, will you explain the the way a trader looks at this and weighs the the possibility of getting caught, which seems to be on the on the low end, to the possibility of the compensation and the incentives? Yeah. So um, the thing about the currency markets is that they're very they're sort of notoriously opaque, right? They're not very transparent largely because they're constituted by a relatively small number of trading houses. Uh, these aren't sort of open exchanges that are uh, sort of subjected to you know, broad public scrutiny. In fact, even regulatory scrutiny is rather less intense here than it is in many other uh, markets. So it's pretty easy uh, for you know, those who actually work in these markets uh, to come up with schemes and, and easy for them to think that they're not being watched because very oftentimes uh, they're not. That being said, you know, ever since the, the foreign exchange scandals broke a couple of years ago, there has been a lot more intense scrutiny of them. And so you, it really, you know, I suspect that people are being a little bit more careful now. But Mr. Johnson, of course, was engaged in his, his fraudulent behavior, or at least uh, allegedly fraudulent behavior, back before these scandals broke, right, back in December of 2011. Lenin, describe his defense, which began today. Well, we've been in the courtroom this morning, and a lot of what has happened is uh, the description of these trading practices as hedging or pre-hedging, um, as Bob said. And um, a lot of it is coming down to the description as standard practice. If you have you know, an order of billions of pounds, then the desk or the bank that is handling that transaction needs to sort of uh, prepare for it instead of trying to do all of that at, at once. So um, a lot of it has come down to this is standard practice. There's nothing in foreign exchange that's prohibited these practices. They point to um, government reports and, um, you know, other other uh, statutes which don't outlaw the, the use of this kind of behavior. So um, a lot of it is coming down to this is business as usual. This is how it was always done. Bob, is this sort of like insider trading where, you know, it's not written down anywhere and there the courts are constantly going back and forth about what it is? 
Uh, it is a bit. I mean, insider trading law actually is written down, but the problem with it, of course, is that it's fairly, very broadly worded, so it's subject to interpretation. And it's essentially the same story here, except instead of, instead of dealing with the 33 or 34 Act, uh, we're dealing with the Wire Fraud Act. Uh, and here, too, right, the, the offenses are stated uh, or defined in fairly broad terms. And so it's up to the courts over time to develop a jurisprudence interpreting uh, those terms. Um, I think if, if the prosecution's empirical claims as to what was going on here are correct, it wouldn't be that difficult to show a case of fraud or to make out a case of fraud under the law as, it's cur- as it currently stands. But everything really does hinge on what precisely they can show actually happened as a matter, again, of the empirics. And, Lenin, is it true that the defendant has said that he is going to take the stand or his defense counsel has said that? That he's going to take the stand. Yes, they said that this morning. So um, that will be extremely interesting to hear in his own words, um, you know, what he thinks uh, went on and, and to hear him defend himself. Bob, that is uh, a very risky strategy, would you say? Uh, yes, it, it certainly can be. I mean, um, as you know, right, uh, the so-called uh, Pharma Bro case with uh, Mr. Screlly, uh is, is almost the poster child case for, for the dangers now, right? If you if you appear arrogant, if you appear impatient with the court for its pesky interference with your uh, profit-seeking behavior, uh, you can uh, very quickly alienate either a jury uh, or a judge. On the other hand, if you're able to kind of come across as being composed and you seem, um, you know, relatively innocent, uh, um, and not like a, a kind of a criminal, then it can be helpful uh, as well. Lenan, do we know how long the, the trial is expected to last? We think it's going to be another two weeks, June. Um, at the beginning of the case, they said it was going to be roughly a month, um, and so two weeks have elapsed, so probably another couple of weeks. All right. Well, thank you both for being on Bloomberg Law. That's Lenan Nguyen, Bloomberg FX reporter, and Bob Hockett, professor at Cornell University Law School.